Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Patty James, co-chair of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum and chair of this program. It is now pleasure my pleasure to introduce Dr. Mary Lou Jepson, who is the founder of Open Water, whose goal is to see deep into the body with the detail of a high-resolution 3D camera. The implications are broad for both healthcare and for communication directly with thought. Previously, she was an engineering executive at Facebook, Oculus, Google X and Intel, as well, as well as founder of four startups, including One Laptop Per Child, where she was the CTO, chief architect, and delivered to mass production the $100 laptop. She has been a professor at MIT as an inventor on over 200 published or issued patents. She's been recognized with many awards, including Time Magazine Time 100 as one of the 100 most influential influential people in the world, and as a CNN top 10 thinker and Forbes top 50 women in technology in 2018. Mary Lou holds a PhD in optical physics, an SCB in electrical engineering from Brown University, and an SCM in computational holography from the MIT Media Lab. Ben Huang, Dr. Huang, PhD, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Profusa, is pioneering tissue integrating biosensors for continuous monitoring of body chemistries. From his early expo- exposure as an undergrad research fellow at the lab of Leroy Hood at Caltech, where the automated DNA sequencer was developed, to bringing cutting-edge life science tools to the market at Life Technologies Corp., which was acquired by Thermo Fisher Scientific, Inc., Ben has seen firsthand the transformative impact that science and technology have to save our world. Prior to Profusa, Ben served in a variety of leadership roles at Life Technology Corp., including President of of the Asia-Pacific and head of QPCR division. A former management consultant at McKinsey & Company, Ben earned his MA and PhD in biology from the John Hopkins University. We have quite the the two speakers here today, don't we? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, Mary Lou, take it away. I'll start. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, thank you for having me, Commonwealth Club. And I'm going to talk yeah, uh, a little bit about Open Water. It's the name of my company, but it's a project. It's sort of a crazy idea that I uh, departed. I quit my cushy job at Facebook about three and a half years ago to sort of say, whoa, maybe we can relook at consumer electronics and the trillion-dollar manufacturing supply chain to lower the cost of something all of us care dearly about, healthcare. One of the problems is healthcare has gotten more expensive. As somebody that ships a lot of high-volume consumer electronics, we're good at like four words in Asia, cost down, yield up. And I think that we can put some things that could help lower the cost of healthcare and improve it um, into the supply chain. And it's much bigger than my little company called Open Water. It's a much bigger project. So what we're trying to do and start is create a low-cost, portable, medical imaging thing the size of a smartphone that can see in resolution and in image quality better than multi-million dollar MRI scanners. The type that um, actually saved my life 25 years ago, maybe saved other people's lives in this room, but the cost has not changed in the 25 years since it saved my life. I can't imagine doing that as a person in consumer electronics because we... um, we uh, uh, lower the cost by a lot, so think 25 years ago. So what this could do is enable us to diagnose disease better, um, using the hospitals, um, uh, see where if, this, if the tumor's all the way out, um, and even do things in brain-computer interface and brain disease. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Um, Right now, three quarters of humanity lacks access to medical imaging. That's actually all of us, because uh, an MRI scan here in the lovely town of San Francisco 
is very high. It's about $12,000 at UCSF. I know because I get one done every year. Um, and it's millions of dollars per machine. Um, and, and really the issue is that prices haven't changed in decades. And so how do you know if you need one? How do you know if you have the cancer, right? Like right now we know mammography for women doesn't work. Half of women have have dense breast tissue. And so they get diagnosed at stage three with mammography. If we could afford to give MRIs to them, we could diagnose at stage one or stage two. But that's too expensive. So those women that get diagnosed at stage three, they get chemo, they quit their job for a year. It's super expensive and painful. So the question is like, can we lower the cost of the medical imaging to, to... to do this. In my case, I was doing my PhD in physics and was living in a wheelchair, sleeping 20 hours a day, body full of sores. Got to see um, doctor, professors at this university, that ha- at Brown University, that had a med school and no one could diagnose what was wrong with me. So I finally like, could no longer remember how to subtract and didn't, I mean, I couldn't move half of my face either. I drooled. It was sort of as if Novocaine had been applied. It was not the best, the best look. I got better. Newsflash. But, um, <laughs> so here's the thing is I, I filled out the paperwork and I dropped out of school to go home. My parents uh, said I could move in with them to die because no one could figure out what I had. I couldn't. I, I didn't think I deserved a PhD in physics from an Ivy League school and I couldn't subtract. And luckily... Um, after that, um, a professor called me saying, you know, you have those massive headaches. Maybe we should spring for a scan. They gave me the scan. They found my brain tumor. It took 30 days to get it operated on and to petition to get back into my PhD program. And I'll admit it. I'm not proud. I used the I had a brain tumor excuse. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> um, and it took six months to finish my PhD. And then with two other students, we got $4 million to start our first company. And I was off and running um, since then. But I never forgot how expensive it is. And it's truly expensive. And we can diagnose things if we lower the cost of diagnosis. And so I come at this really from an optics perspective and sitting there at Oculus and and Facebook three and a half years ago, I realized camera chips were, two things were happening with them. The pixel size was getting smaller, Moore's Law, smaller, the size of the wavelength of light, and I knew that red light goes through our body. And so I thought, hmm, maybe we could see inside of our body using red light and these new camera chips that were being developed for augmented reality. And the only moneymaker in augmented reality right now, let's face it, Pokemon Go. So (laughs) all this money was being spent for this vision of augmented reality, but for sure, Pokemon Go plus plus was going to make money. And so... What's fast forward three years, these camera chips that can see in high resolution in the infrared are in smartphones right now so that a picture of you can't unlock your smartphone, but your real 3D face. And so what happens is there's about 500 lasers in an iPhone that spurt out at your face. You can't see them. They're infrared. Your eye safe, um, <laughs> really. Uh, and then there's a camera chip in very high resolution in the infrared that makes sure it's you on your smartphone. So that's cool. It's been developed. So we're using that in focused ultrasonic pings to replace an MRI machine to transform medical imaging. So we have these lasers we've developed, these ultrasonic chips, and these camera chips. And with that, we can put them in something the size of a smartphone or a ski hat and see inside in high resolution. So last year, we made a prototype of this on a big optical table that floats on air, and we're able to start imaging through what we call phantom tissue, sort of tissue, sort of things that we make out of plastic and rubber and so forth with the same optical and ultrasonic properties as the body. And so we thought, whoa, this thing has legs. It works. And so got some money, um, gave a TED Talk on it, and um, got the money to build out the camera chips and the lasers. And so we're here right now with these uh, kind of a wand and a laser and a, and a bit of a breadboard and looking at reducing that to kind of a tricorder size in a few years, putting it in ambulances and so forth. And so here's what the image quality looks like. Again, we started with these blobs, finding blobs in opaque kind of material like this. 
and we could find the tumor, like with the optical properties of a tumor. And then we could start to find vasculature, faux vasculature. Or we would go over, we're about a block from a Safeway, so we'd buy whatever meat was on sale and <laughs> see what we could see inside of it. Um, here's some kidneys that were on sale. And then, um, then we got all the components, we put them together, and we had really crappy images. <laughs> Just awful, you couldn't see anything. So we said, okay, stop everything. Let's go back to these blobs and let's not put anything in them. And a the perfect image is nothing. It's called signal to noise ratio. You want to have lower noise so then you can start to see the signal. So then we started to do rats and kidneys and things. And now we have these gorgeous images like this. So this is, these are um, some kidneys that we scanned. And this is some, these are some... Um, isosurfaces of that kidney. And just to give you an idea, oh, and you can see sort of all these features inside of a kidney or a liver or, that's super important, like, what did that glass of wine do to my liver last night? I'd like to know. And, uh, you know, like maybe if we could see it, we would change our behaviors. And so here's what we do compared to MRI and compared to um, like a $400,000 ultrasound machine. So if you look at it, we're really getting there, and we're doing it with just lasers, ultrasonic pings, and um, camera chips. It's, it's unbelievable, right? So we're kind of psyched. Um, and so here's <laughs> here, so we we uh, we have a small animal imaging facility. It's a turnkey facility. We have to uh, you know file reports for every every test we do on a rat, and it's red light. It's at levels that are less than you get outside in San Francisco on a summer day. But we basically have the camera chip, the ultrasonic pings, and the laser, and we're imaging in the rats. And so this is working. We're excited. We think we can be in humans next year, alpha kits that are sort of desktop size at the end of the year, and then reduce them. And uh, so that's what we're working on. And where we really go, there's some profound applications of this, where maybe we could get hospital in the box. But what we're really focused on, we have this sort of moonshot of brain-computer interface, but if you think of, I don't know, like Elon Musk, SpaceX, right? He wants to go to Mars and die not on impact, but they're making money launching satellites for NASA. So here's the thing. We want to work on medical imaging first to make this available and then start to use it for brain-computer interface and um, actually s surgery without the knife. Maybe we could cure diabetes, fix broken bones without the cast. Just I'll, I'll explain a little bit about it. So here's um, some areas that we think we can enter pretty early. Stroke and monitoring, um, breast imaging, as I mentioned, some liver stuff, and also like during surgery... When they're operating on you, did they get it all out or only part of it? That seems pretty important, like this. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, um, the leading cause of disability in the United States is not getting to a medical imaging facility fast enough after a stroke. There's two basic kinds of stroke. There's the clot type and the burst type. If you know what type it is, you can give the right drug. You can give a clot drug to the burst type or a burst drug to the clot type. But if you get the drug wrong, the patient dies. So today that means if you happen to live in a city, it's, it's minutes, minutes to life, minutes to walking and talking, the probability of walking and talking again. So if you live in the country, lots of luck. Your probability of walking and talking again is pretty low. So if we could put this in ambulances, we could detect what kind of stroke somebody had and lower the leading cause of disability in the United States. So that's something we're really focused on, on getting to faster than slower. But ultimately, maybe we could do healthcare at home, track the progress of your tumor, measure, you know, if you have genetic disposition to something, maybe you could check yourself even at home, like you can buy a blood pressure cuff or a thermometer. And then there's the kind of crazy beyond stuff that's not so crazy. Um, we were talking about Michael Milken <laughs> earlier. I was at the Milken conference a few years ago and uh, was seated next to the, a guy, the, a former very famous neurosurgeon who gave up the knife to, he actually uh, did neurosurgery on Joe Biden and says he knows Joe Biden had a, has a brain, unlike other politicians in Washington, because he's seen it. <laughs> and anyway, he was quite charming. And so um, they're working on focusing ultrasound instead of having to have a hygienic 
surgery theater and cut open, especially if you think of open heart surgery, like they open your ribs and they have to, you know, it's a big deal. And so here's the thing is there's, there's, this is now approved in the U.S. with reimbursement for prostate surgery, for essential tremor in other countries, for breast cancer, for all kinds of cancer treatments. And even using the focused ultrasound in the pancreas, you can open up membranes, let the calcium flow through and insulin out. You can cure diabetes and it's just clinical trials now. Or as I said, like just if you focus the ultrasound in a broken bone and put a nano cement all over the place where you focus it, you burst it and can just glue the bone together. Like off you go. Like, it's future stuff, but it's got some legs. Um, and then here's the other thing is uh, psychology right now. I actually think founding startups is a, will be found to be a form of mental disease someday. But, you know, DSM. <laughs> DSM is like you're asked these questions to see if you've got clinical depression. Like, are you sleeping all the time? Have you gained weight? Do you have thoughts of suicide? If you answer yes to those and a litany of other, of other questions, you are clinically depressed. But here's the thing. Last summer, a bunch of hospitals pooled their, their very limited fMRI data on patients to see that there were these patterns in an objective measure of brain disease. When you have that, you could see objectively is the therapy, whatever it is, talk therapy, pills, whatever it is, making it better or worse objectively. So that, that brain disease, most expensive cost of healthcare for every country in the world. So that would be big. And then there's telepathy. Like this is, uh, uh, this, this group in Berkeley actually took graduate students further an MRI machines for hundreds of hours so they could get their PhDs in neuroscience, but made recordings of their brains reacting to video sequences or audio sequences. And then using the tools of our time, big data machine learning, um, a new video clip was shown that the student hadn't seen before. And just using the fMRI scan data where the, uh, uh, where the head lit up, the computer inferred what it thought the student was looking at. And then if I add to that the fact that if when you look at something versus imagine seeing it, the same areas light up in your head in an fMRI. And we're replacing MRI into a ski cap. So we could get a lot more data. These are grainy, low resolution. These are one cubic, 10 cubic millimeter voxel size, so about 1,200 per the brain with just a few hundred hours. You can also extract words and so forth. So I guess the main point is this is way bigger than us. We're really looking to collaborate with people on development of this. We know a lot about physics. That's a good advance. We don't know as much about the other areas. And we're really just talking to other people to see you know, how we can help as part of a solution. And we also know a lot about manufacturing stuff. So yeah, so that's what we're doing is, is basically taking that and putting it into a portable and that's all I got. <laughs> wow. Thank you. I'm going to go home now. <laughs> We're about to be blown away. <laughs> wow. Oh, sorry. So what she said. Uh, I, thank you for having, having me. Um, I had a pleasure, actually, of meeting Dr. Jepson a couple years ago, a couple of times at conferences. She doesn't remember me. I definitely remember her. I think... <laughs> The, uh, the stuff that she's actually doing in, is uh, amazing, really amazing. So thanks for sharing this stage with me. Uh, great to be here. Thank you, Commonwealth Club, for inviting me. Uh, how is everybody doing? How are you? Good. Good. Are you sure? <laughs> I think that's actually the point, right? Uh, we, we ask people, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you? All the time. And I think the, the throwaway answer is always, yes, we're okay. I'm fine. But once a year, if we're lucky, when we see our doctors, we get a chance to figure out, are we really okay? Are we doing as well as we think we're doing? Because your physician and your blood test and whatever examination that you actually go through for your annual checkup uh, happens on, in those intervals, and that's the point in which you could say, yep, I'm doing okay or not. The problem with that particular approach is this. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, old enough to remember that uh, security cameras used to be one in which they take a picture every 15 minutes or so, right? And so what happens, you take a picture and you say, oh, everything's fine, all the doors are closed. And you take another picture, everything's fine, everything's closed. And the next time you take a picture, the windows open, the doors 
uh, down. He said, oh, what happened? My house got broken into. But nothing in between. How was it broken into? The causality of it, what caused it? Was it the wind that knocked it open? Did you forget to lock the door? Or is it really somebody breaking the door down? That's actually um, a detail that you just miss. And not having high temporal resolution data, not having information about who you are and how you're doing at at real-time intervals when it's truly giving you the feedback that you need to make choices uh, is a big gap today in healthcare and how we actually want to live our lives. By the way, we're not, uh, at Profisa, we're not the ones that actually are so clever to come up with this notion that real-time biochemical information or real-time information is helpful to you. As a matter of fact, I'm willing to wager, I see one now, I see one there, that many of us, more than 50% of us are wearing an Apple Watch or wearing a Fitbit band or wearing something that's keeping track of your steps, right? And the issue is, You know, I used to not have to do this. <laughs> now I have to do this. There you go. Um, the, issue, the, the issue actually is uh, uh, we, we, we have tools available to us that allows us this real-time input of information and data that allows us to make choices about almost all aspects of our, of our lives. Uh, many of us who actually came uh, from our homes to this Commonwealth Club today did so by punching the address into the Google, uh, Google app. And the Google app tells you in real time, hey, this road is closed, this road is not uh, uh, open, the traffic is better here. It allows you to make real-time choices to get to your destination much more efficiently. That data and that information impacts all of us in areas that's important for commerce. It's areas that's important for how we live our lives. As a matter of fact, it's starting to to impact how we keep track of our heart and how to actually impact uh, how we want to live. But the gap that happens between wellness, what we have today, to where we want to be, which is having that information that you could use in real time to manage your health in a way that's significant to lower the cost of health, prevent disease from happening, requires attributes of the technology that just doesn't exist today. If you have a Fitbit with you, and I love the company. I was a shareholder at one time. It's great. It starts, started this revolution. But if you have a Fitbit and you start feeling a little bad about yourself, you start feeling a little sick and not feeling well, and you go see your doctor and you say, doctor, I'm not feeling well. What's wrong with me? Oh, by the way, before you draw blood before you give me an x-ray, before you diagnose what's wrong with me, here's my Fitbit data for the last month. This is the number of steps that I've walked every single day for the last month, for the last year. The physician's answer would be what? That's great. I'm glad you're keeping track of how many steps you're walking. I'm going to draw the blood anyways. (laughs) Because that information is not aligned with how medical community today views what information is important for them to diagnose disorders. And that gap of getting data that you could actually trust, that physicians could actually trust to make a diagnosis, do so in a way where the experience is seamless for an individual. Uh, I used to have a Fitbit, and then I actually stopped using it after a while because I wear a watch and wear something else. It's just not something that I'm actually used to wearing. You know, we, we're lazy enough as a population, not anybody here, of course, because you're here listening to me talk, <laughs> but every other person outside of this room, they're lazy enough <laughs> where if you ask them to change their lives for a little bit, even if it's good for you, it's tough to break that habit. So whatever technology you bring forth to someone has to be one in which it, in, it integrates into your lives in a very, very low friction way. And then lastly, technology has to be accessible. Right? Whatever technology you put inside the, the marketplace to, to, for, for, you, for everyone to say, yeah, I'm going to use it, it has to be accessible, not just because um, I need to be able to get it somewhere, but it has to be low enough cost, as Mary Lou was saying. It has to be low enough cost where cost is not going to be a burden for people using it. If the technology that I bring forth and a sensor that I bring forth that gives you data that doctors trust, it could use, that's a wonderful, delightful experience for you. You never have to think about it. You just kind of put on your shirt or put on your watch and you go about your day. But it costs $10,000 a month. Nobody will use it. It has to be low enough cost where everyone could actually benefit from it. And um, it, it, listen, this is not a commercial, but I, I, I want you guys to know that it's actually reality. Hold on a second. Awesome. 
Here we go. We love demos. Yeah. So, uh, so um, this is uh, the reality. Uh, this is our sensor. By the way, uh, it's small. I, I give a talk one time, and I pulled it out of my pocket. I said, it's really small. And the guy said, uh, somebody in the audience says, no, it's huge. I said, no, it, this is the vial. It, it's actually inside. <laughs> the sensor is inside. It's a little green sliver that's floating. I'll pass it around so you guys can take a look at it. We've developed a, a sensor. And what the sensor does actually is when injected under the skin, it provides long-term sensing in real time of your biochemistry. So, so it gives you the information that uh, a physician would, need, would use by drawing a vial of blood out, for example. But it gives you that same type of information um, in real time without, uh, and you, without you having to do anything other than just kind of having that sensor inside the body. Now, one, listen, as I mentioned earlier, there are tons of companies with many, many efforts, lots of shots on goals in trying to do this, right? We're not the first one to actually have attempted this. Continuous monitoring of biochemistry inside the body. If you suffer from diabetes, if you suffer from COPD, it's incredibly beneficial for, for, for humanity to solve the problem. The issue has always been that your body's exquisitely good, exquisitely, I mean, really, really good at determining what belongs inside the body and what doesn't belong inside the body. Anyone who's ever gotten a splinter knows what I'm talking about. You get a splinter, it doesn't matter how small it is. As a matter of fact, sometimes the, only t- the first time you realize you had a splinter in you is when it starts to hurt a little bit. You go, why is that a little red? And it might get a little pussy, kind of gross. And then after a few days, maybe the splinter get ejected. Your body doesn't like something foreign inside you. The good news is... Uh, as a species, we ought to celebrate that, right? If your body is not good at determining what belongs inside and what doesn't belong inside, we wouldn't be here today. Dinosaurs would rule the world. Uh, But because your body is so good at determining what belongs inside the body versus not, that foreign body response, while it's great for a human species, it's awful, just god-awful if you're trying to develop a sensor. Because, and by the way, we could have a debate over my next statement uh, over a couple of adult beverages someday. I don't want to spend time here talking about it. But to, to measure what's inside the body in biochemical terms accurately over a large panel that doctors would draw blood to measure, um, you, you have to put something inside the body. It's, it's, our, it's our thesis. That to do it through the skin optically, uh, it's going to be really, really difficult. And part of that difficulty lies in the fact that a lot of what's important is in low abundance inside the body. There's not a lot of it. So it's kind of like trying to you know, find a needle in a, hay- a haystack, one. And two, uh, the, the second problem is as low of abundance as whatever it is you're trying to measure, what's healthy versus not healthy is actually in very tight range. That change is very small, right? Your sodium level, if it goes up and down just by a little bit, you're in big trouble. And so you have to not only find something that's not in high abundance, but you have to measure in a way where changes, small changes, you have to be able to determine um, uh, with high degree of accuracy when those changes occur. And so you can't do that really easily through the skin. You have to do it uh, through the skin. You have to do it inside the body. Now, you have to do it inside the body. Well, how do you overcome the foreign body response? How do you overcome millions of years of evolution um, and be able to put something inside the body and fold the body into not minding it? And that's really kind of our big innovation, right? Our big innovation is that little sliver of green stuff inside the vial that you see here. When placed under the tissue, your body doesn't mind it being there. And the answer is, well, how does it do that? Why? Well, it's twofold, right? One it's soft and pliable. So that uh, material is in a class of material called hydrogel. It's actually quite simple. It's the same material as soft contact lenses that you wear, so it's soft and squishy. I have a couple of sensors inside my body. Afterwards, please uh, come and feel it. You just can't, you can't feel it. But once you touch my skin, you have to buy me a drink. So that's, <laughs> um, <laughs> or at least flowers. Yeah. Uh, second, uh, secondly, is there's a bit of biomimicry in, in, in our approach. Uh, what you see here on the right-hand side is actually a high-resolution um, picture of our hydrogel uh, sensor. You notice that it's actually got a lot of holes, a lot of pores inside. It's kind of like a honeycomb or a sponge. Each pore is a, a connected to each adjacent port. It mimics what's called the extracellular matrix inside the body. That's the intellectual uh, um, grandparent of what we do. The extracellular matrix inside the body basically is the scaffolding where cells grow through. It allows your heart to look like a heart, your kidney to look like a kidney, your liver to look like a liver. Your body doesn't mind it actually being there. 
uh, and, and as a matter of fact, it embraces it. So our sensor is built in a way where the body doesn't mind it being there. We put it under the skin. Body throws health, grows healthy tissue throughout the interior of that sensor. And so instead of a, 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 a traditional hard sensor that's embedded with electronics where you have to change it out every couple of weeks because the encapsulation, the scar tissue around it makes the sensor, even if the sensor still works, it's no longer measuring the body. It's measuring scar tissue, which doesn't do you much good. Uh, our sensor actually works for months and years. The last sensor that I had inside my body, um, it was about two years before it stopped working and I have to actually replace it. And now the magic actually happens, right? Think about it. Mm. If you see your doctor once a year, but the sensors work for more than a year, it means that a sensor that's injected inside you, by the way, it's no more invasive than getting a vial of blood drawn. As a matter of fact, it's probably less invasive because getting a vial of blood drawn, the needle stays in there and they keep shoving the vial in and uh, the, the tube in and out. Whereas this is one poke and you're done. But once that sensor is in there, it works for as long as you need until the next physician's visit. So you literally can live your body, live your life any way you kind of want. And the way this works is this hydrogel that's inside the skin is the, you know, the jargon. It's the disposable. That's the part that actually you don't recover in terms of the cost of the system. How many of you wear contact lenses? Yeah, I, 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 uh, I should. I'm too lazy to take them out. <laughs> Once again, it's a usability thing, right? Um, if you wear contact lenses and you buy contact lenses, you know how inexpensive they can be, right? At scale, they're a buck. And the buck, that's like an 80% gross margin business for a contact lens manufacturer. It's very inexpensive to make. This thing is actually a fraction of a penny to manufacture. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So what you throw away is a fraction of a penny. It gives you a year of continuous biochemistry data. What you use to read, what you use to read the sensor is really an external reader that has low power LED with a camera on the surface. So similar to what uh, Dr. Jepson was talking about earlier, but it's just much less sophisticated. It's light that shines through the skin. On that sliver of hydrogel, this sensor, we embed mo uh, molecules that binds to what you want to sense. Glucose, oxygen, sodium, potassium, lactate, whatever it is that you want to, you want to measure. And that chemistry is a class of chemistry called uh, uh, fluorophores. They fluoresce or phosphoresce. And uh, if something is bound to it, the fluorescence changes, the characteristics change. So now all you need to do is on the surface of the skin, you have a reader. You shine light through the skin. It's in the near-infrared. As Dr. Jepson said earlier, the red light goes through the skin. It's in the near-infrared range, so the light goes through the skin, but it's not strong enough. It's not like UV where it actually hurts your body. And as soon as it illuminates the sensor, the sensor returns a light that comes back through the skin. There's a photodetector on the surface of the skin that looks at the photons coming back through, gives you a, a, a value. Now, this is done by light. So you could interrogate the sensor now as, fre as frequently as twice, three times a second, because this reaction is very, very fast, or as infrequently as, well, never. It's completely up to you. More importantly, because we're doing light, if we could uh, change the wavelength of two chemistries, one measuring sodium, one measuring glucose, one measuring oxygen, etc., and you could tune the wavelength separately, then you can actually measure multiple parameters on one sensor at the same time. So instead of getting a vial of blood drawn once a year, here is the Chem 8, Chem 4 panel, you now have the ability to get the CAM4, CAM8 panel data every single second of your life. And you know the impact of that end-state biochemical change by your actions at that moment. Just like the Google Maps uh, allows you to come here. I usually go over the Bay Bridge. Today, I'm not going to go over the Bay Bridge because the Bay Bridge is closed based on an accident. I'm going to go a longer way around. That real-time information help you make a decision that optimizes your choice of how you want to live your life before you actually see a doctor. And we think that actually changes the world in a pretty profound way. 
Uh, here's a, the, how it actually works. I think I talked about that quite a bit, months and years. Oh, so um, what I've actually shown you is uh, approved in Europe. So we're actually, this is real. It's, it's, we were talking about this outside a little bit uh, on what a wonderful time it is to be alive, right? Like 15 years ago, it used to be science fiction. Now it's actually coming to reality. Well, it is reality. This is, this is uh, real. We, we have a, a variety of actually data and information that uh, we could gather now. Our first applications thus far is with critical limb ischemia patients in uh, Europe. These are folks where arteries... Uh, are blocked and it doesn't provide enough oxygenation to the foot. You have these ulcerations that won't heal. Physicians will open up the arteries, but they don't know if they open up the arteries, the tissue is actually getting the oxygen that they, that they need. So intraoperatively, uh, our sensors are giving doctor absolute direction on, hey, this, th- what you've done is enough, good. It's, it, uh, it hasn't restored uh, oxygenation yet, keep going. But more importantly, these patients who are usually uh, less mobile because they have these wounds that won't heal, uh, when they go home, they could get monitored remotely at home. They don't have to come back in the hospital for their one-month follow-up or three-month follow-up or six-month follow-up. They could actually get this information taken care of at home, and the doctors could tell remotely, hey, um, I know you're not supposed to come in for another two weeks, but you should come in now because your tissue oxygenation is actually starting going down. Your arteries are starting to harden again. Or I know you're supposed to come in tomorrow. Stay home. Don't worry about it. Enjoy your day because you're fine, Right. That real-time adjudication remotely actually is quite meaningful uh, for us. Uh, And then lastly, this is actually pretty exciting for us. Um, We talk about measuring oxygen or measuring glucose or measuring particular analyte together. But like that Google Maps example, you know, for Google Maps as a product to work, uh, a lot of things have to happen well, right? Not only are you looking at the the map, how the roads go, but you also have to um, know real-time traffic patterns. You probably, in California, you're also working with Caltran to understand where road closures and road work is actually occurring. Uh, you're also probably uh, in charge with, the, you know, in touch with the local uh, fire department with control burns and such. Just look at, I mean, there are a lot of things that actually need to happen for Google Map to actually um, uh, deliver the promise that Google Maps uh, delivers. Same thing with this technology. The sensor data that we provide is on the... Oh, crap. Oh, can I say crap on a podcast? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, whoops. Uh, uh, our, our, our sensor data is actually on the top, and it gives us richness information for, for whatever disease that we're actually managing. But what's really exciting is if you take that information, you need to layer on top of it heart rate variability, for example layer on top of it pulse, layer on top of it activity, layer on top of it body position, layer on top of it pollen count, layer on top of it altitude, layer on top of it activity, activity level, layer on top of it respiratory level. You now have an ability in a multivariate way to create causality of not just your actions but also your environment in real time to figure out what's causing those biomarkers to be moving up and down in real time. And I think the implication to not just how you manage your health how your physicians manage your health, but also health sciences in, in general, what the causality of certain events with the individual is actually quite profound. Uh, so what we, uh, the opportunity uh, that, that uh, this kind of information pr- could provide, uh, I, we, we believe is large. If you, just actually, if you just take oxygen and glucose and say, I could in real time give you bio, uh, biochemical information for respiratory patients, people suffering from respiratory illnesses, and metabolic disorders such as diabetes. You touch one in five patients on the face of the planet today. One in five. So at the end of the day, what we aim to bring to bear is an approach that creates a new way of thinking about how you answer the question, how are you? That you don't have to wait until you go to a doctor on an annual basis to really understand how you're doing. That your interaction with your physicians, that really high-value, important interaction with a physician, doesn't have to happen only once a year. That it could happen actually any time you desire because you have the information and you have the data that enables that interaction to be a very productive and profound one. So with that, thanks for your attention.
So I thought what we'd start with is, is why don't you each, why don't you ask each other a question? We probably have the same questions. Mary Lou, why don't you ask, do you have a question for Ben? Sure. I loved, I loved the presentation. I um, have a lot of questions. Uh, it's fascinating. Those lifetimes, two years, and you can get the tissue, but you don't need to scan it. So that's super cool. Right. So where do you put it in the tissue? Yeah, that's it's a great question. And, and um, so the science of the sensor is that it measures its immediate surrounding. Right. So the answer is that is not driven by the platform. We know what it does. The answer actually is driven by the physiology. What is it? What's the information that you're trying to get? So for systemic disorders such as diabetes, for example, it's distributed. Yeah, it's distributed. Right. So. Um, so anyway. Two things you could put it anywhere. Is it about the size of a rice? It's tiny. Or? No, you know. Oh, it's rice even smaller. Is, That's right. You yeah, rice is actually rice is actually t- uh, bigger than that. Yeah, this is. Uh, you know, when I had it injected in me, I mean, I'm a little bit afraid of needles, right? <laughs> but it just wasn't. It's like getting a getting a shot. That's right? it's, it's, yeah, it's like getting a shot. So it depends on the application. For the wound care application, for example, you put it right next to the wound because what you worry about is the local environment and you want to see the local environment recovery. It's the but oxygenation for, there. That's right. But for, but for, the, for applications such as diabetes or COPD, you put it around the core because it is a physiological response. And since the body's uh, glucose level, for example, is kind of prevalent everywhere and it's pretty uniform, and the lack time of glucose uh, calibration Within, within the body is within minutes. It's over the range of minutes. Uh, it really doesn't matter where you put it. You're going to get the right information. That's fantastic. Yeah. Can we put more of the material inside of us? You can. You can. So Where's the... Tr- yeah, so where's the... So, so, boy, I tell you... The, you want to know where it's happening everywhere, right? You, you could. You could. Well, you know, the, the, the our potential application here is actually pretty pretty neat. When you, when you kind of think about... Um, uh, you could map out a variety of... Uh, sort of distributed biomarkers ar- around the body. You know, the material is so small, and the foreign body, uh, the foreign material that we put inside the body is actually so, um, it's just negligible, mm-hmm. that the amount of sensors that you put inside the body is actually not a... a and what's the response time? It's just very, kidney, kidney neurons? Yeah, it's very, very fast. One of the things that we actually are toyed around, so we've been fortunate to have gotten funding support from NIH and also from DARPA, and one of the things that we're talking about with DARPA is using these sensors as, uh, as sheets and neuromuscular junctions and look at um, electroceuticals. Wonderful. Right? Uh, how, so electroceutical is this field where um, neuron firing and the frequency of neuron firing is um, used to control organ function and therefore uh, uh, as a therapeutic for certain diseases. Um, so you're not putting small molecules inside. You're just kind of using the body and fire the neurons a different way. So you, you can, can get into milliseconds. Yeah, so, yeah, that's awesome. The oh yeah, the uh, the uh, the uh, fluorescence lifetime decay here is in the order of uh, nanoseconds. Wonderful. Uh, microsecond decays on phosphorescence. So one of our detection metho- methodologies in that range. So milliseconds is that's such a cool material and system. It's fantastic. Yeah, thanks. I'm very excited for you. By the way, uh, say hi to Slava. He he helped develop this. So when can we try? <laughs> when can He's we try it? Chemistry, you know, company. oh, in a different country. It's yeah, the U.S. So is not known for the most no, innovation actually, in healthcare, uh, right? We actually <laughs> have a couple of studies going on in the U.S., and we're about to kick off a few more studies in the U.S. to get U.S. Uh, to get our first FDA approval uh, next year. So stay tuned, and w- there are a lot more exciting news coming out of what we do. But um, you know, there's only certain finite number of hours in the day that we wake up and try to contribute to the world. So we really feel fortunate that we could do this. Great. So, so Ben, do you have any uh, questions uh, for Mary Lou? Yeah. So at what age did you realize you were brilliant? (laughs) 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 Uh, (laughs) 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 I I haven't gotten, (laughs) I haven't gotten there yet. So, but you were, no, 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 all kidding aside. Um, I, I was, I I think the first time I met you, uh, you had just started open water, and you were just describing the concept a couple of years ago. You were yeah, just yeah, describing. Yeah. It, it was uh, at the, it was either Fortune brain uh, brainstorm. Oh, that would right? be yeah. That's yeah. That's, that's right. That's right. And that's the first time you actually got on stage. When we were, you were talking about. It. I was just intrigued by. It. And congratulations on the progress that you actually made. Listen, what's what's like? I want this to happen so badly myself. What's the remaining risk? What you you come so far. There's so much that it's been accomplished. Um, 
Is there any technical risk left? And if so, what is it? The biggest risk we face now is the cost of the laser mm-hmm. in the near term. We've got two laser paths. One's a little bit expensive. In the long term, we think we could reduce it. So we've gotten, I think, out of the technical risk. But the laser we're making became more and more complicated. And so now we've made system changes to make the laser easier. It had, to, it had to be a very, very fine color or wavelength bandwidth, for those of you speaking that, right. and pulse in about a microsecond. And that's because we record holograms of your body, right. which is how we get the resolution right. in a different way using these camera chips. But here's the thing is we're alive. It's good to be alive, but that means we move. Right. And what your body does is scatter this red light And we need to record the hologram before the scattering happens too much. That's the moving of the white blood cells, for example, through your body. And so for that, we've got about 10 microseconds. And so we've actually been figuring out ways to, um, to, to dramatically change that to enable a, a dollar laser. But right now, the laser's more expensive. So that's really... What, what keeps me up at night. Yeah. Um, the other thing that keeps me up at night is, is I suppose just normal stuff from management is, is, is we've got great people in our team and I need, I need it to be a great team too. It's yeah. good. Yeah. You haven't lost anybody. Everybody's happy, but like, you know, we're growing and it's just their standard startup stuff, right. I suppose. Right. Then FDA is a little bit scary, but the predicate products for near infrared light, right. as you know, go back 100 years. It, we absolutely. know the safety levels. And then ultrasound, most pregnant women in the developing world have had ultrasounds for the last 50 years. So the, there's all these predicate products for safety. And so, um, yeah, I suppose the third thing that keeps me up at night, and maybe for you too, we're a hardware company. Death to a hardware company is picking the wrong first product because it's a expensive yeah. to develop and so again we're not pitching i think we're just trying you probably either it's like there's so much investment to the hardware you want to make sure like you i think we want to make our first product to be the thing that can provide the most good to humanity um and just you know do we do breast imaging do we do liver do we do the ambulance for the what kind of stroke what's the because it's the end-to-end thing like, how is the nurse going to use it? How is the insurance going to reimburse? Like, all of that is super Absolutely. important for that to be able to be delivered to people, which is why we're probably both here talking about it, because <laughs> right. we want to know what's going to kill us beforehand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think at the end of the day, too, the, what's unique about healthcare, and by the way, we celebrate it. It's not a complaint. But the regulatory scrutiny is so high, and the, rightfully so, right? I, you right. know, as an innovator, you, you're, you're bugged by it. But as a parent, you you celebrate it. You say, oh, that's great. I'm, I, I love the fact that the FDA exists because every time my, doc, my son goes to a hospital, I don't have to worry like I do when I was in China. You kind of worry, you know, at the hospital. Like, where did that vaccine come from? Uh, who made it? And whereas in the U.S., you don't. So you suffer. But, but as an innovator, that's, that's, it's, it's tough. And it creates this even higher burden, to your point, of got to make sure you're right the first time out because that journey is so long and so expensive that you can't fail fast. Okay. We have quite a few questions, some pretty technical, but I think if if we could spend like, this might not be possible, but somewhere around a minute on each question, um, I think we can get to most of them. The first one's probably easy. Uh, Mary Lou, why the name Open Water? Um, this rock star human rights activist, Peter Gabriel, called me almost, it felt like every week, it probably wasn't that much, trying to convince me to do this work outside of Facebook. And he wrote an essay <laughs> for The Edge, something in the news lately, um, John Brockman's organization. He wrote an essay about who I have nothing to do with, just for the record, um, um, uh, he wrote an essay about our thoughts flowing like water and learning, needing to have swimming lessons to learn how to deal with this coming online. And it, and so literally I, um, 
was joining the board of a public company and never wanted to fill out the SEC paperwork again for <laughs> conflicts of interest. And so I wrote to Peter like, hey, can I use the name and incorporate it? And he said, sure. And so I, I used the name to incorporate it and it's just stuck. Okay. So, well, there we go. That's it. So um, this, Mary Lou, is, this one's for you. Um, Mary Lou, suicide is the second leading, leading cause of death in California among 10 to 34-year-olds. What system or systems are you building to be part of the solution, not the problem? Mental health con- conditions are the highest um, spend in the country, uh, over $200 billion. So she just... Uh, yes. Yes, absolutely. So the the problem is you have to move the whole field of psychiatry out of DSM and the subjective measure to an objective measure and then start to develop it. And it takes time. And I know the house is on fire. It's it's awful. Clinical depression, on average, something like 20% of us will get it here. If you lived in a war zone, your chances go up by double and you lose 12 years of your career. It's awful. And what we have is not working very well and the drugs have not changed significantly in decades it's a huge huge problem where i go for us to be successful as a company is we're probably better at finding breast cancer and liver disease first or what kind of stroke you had as we prove that as we get these systems to psychiatrists to start proving where they can be useful and get so we want to get these systems out to more people, even though we think to prove how we can reduce, for example, clinical depression may take some years. So, okay, but we care. Okay, um, Dr. Wang, how will this? Okay, so oh, I'm sorry, there's two parts for open water, Dr. Jepson. What will the regulatory challenges be? How Will a big data approach change diagnosis? And then um, how will this change the hmm. concept is the word. There we go. So sorry. Um, concept of normal biochemistry. Can he go first? He hasn't spoken yes. in a while. <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, that's the first time anybody said that to me in my life. I haven't spoken in a while. Uh, for those of you who work with me, you'll know what I mean. <laughs> um, notice Slava's laughing. Uh, you know, that's actually the, the, one of the most exciting things that we look forward to is um, if, you go, if you go get your blood drawn today and you get your values back, you'll notice this range of healthy, right? It'll, it'll, it'll come back and say uh, your hemoglobin level, and this is the healthy range. And sometimes that range is pretty wide, and you'll see this bracket depending on how the report is written, and you get this X right here in the bracket or outside of the bracket, and you say, okay, I'm reasonably healthy. The thing is, we're all incredibly different from each other, right? She's a thousand times smarter than <laughs> You're ten yep. times more handsome than I am, right? <laughs> you could jump higher. You could run farther, etc. Um, we're different, and thank goodness for that. But what that also means is our biochemistry inherently has to be different. How we manage uh, recovery from the deviation of the norm is different. Um, a very personal example, I have a history of gout in my family. So my uric acid level in my family is really, really high. My resting uric acid level is probably about 12 mg per deciliter. If you had six, doctors put you on allopurinol. Right, less than six, you are kind of in a normal range. I'm at twelve, and that's I jump around between ten and twelve. Listen, it drives my doctor crazy, uh, but that's just kind of who I am, and I'm I'm abnormal in that sense. So I would hypothesize what happens is if you could look at your biochemistry over time, and you could look at the deviation from that for you as an individual, and then how quickly and how it recovers down to quote unquote normal what your baseline is. Over time, what you're going to be defining defining for you is a normal for you, for yourself, that you're not normal relative to everybody else. You're normal relative to when you feel the best, when you're healthiest. And I think that's a wonderful outcome uh, for uh, for all of us. Yeah. Is it also taking medicine back to the patient rather than numbers? Exactly. Absolutely. My gout is a goofy, simple, but real example of that. My doctor is trying really hard to get my uric acid level down to six, so I'm on allopurinol. Uh, Listen, is that necessary? Probably not. 
um, and yet it's a source of potential waste for the healthcare system because my therapy is being calibrated against a broad population that's very, very different than me. Mm-hmm. Now, by the way, that's the only way that it could be done today, so hooray for that. Uh, but I think this refinement of who we are over time, longitudinally, is uh, kind of the way of the future. Okay. And here's a question for probably both of you. What about data security? Are there concerns about that and personal privacy? How does the doctor interpret the data, especially a PCP? I'm sorry, PCP. Primary Primary care care physician. Sorry. Yeah. So what about? You go first. Uh, Security. Yes, we care enormously about it because the system that can see inside of our body can see inside of our brain and where this goes in the limit, like Mars, first thing, medical imaging, but where this goes is that last bastion of privacy thought. Even though it might be grainy at first, even though it might have 5% false negatives, we still care deeply about that. And so we're, we've created systems um, like a tokenizer ring and so forth is what we're, we're working on to assure. You might want some people, your spouse, some your friends to, to your kids to have information about you, but not everybody. And there might be these, these, these rings. And to answer the other questions about regulatory, we're using near infrared light and ultrasound at levels that have well-established safety levels. The next thing is that we make an image, is the image repeatable. And from that, you would then infer claims of that's a clogged heart that's a cancer or you care about the answer in the terms of data of collection much like you like three questions for for tumors 30 percent of us are going to die of cancer statistically another 30 percent heart disease that gets 60 percent of us you know is it getting bigger is it getting smaller is it staying the same size how does that change over time how does your diet affect it wow maybe you can start to modify based on that cheesecake last night or the salad or maybe for me the cheesecake's better, you know, that would be yeah. lovely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, da- the data side is something that we obviously pay a ton of attention to because ultimately what we do is just unleash, and both of us, right, unleash a huge amount of data that didn't exist uh, in the past into the world. Um, before I go on to my soliloquy about data, let me just right <laughs> off the bat saying you own your data, We fundamentally believe that you own your data. It's your data. It's nobody else's business. It's not mine. It's not Profusus. It's yours. Um, That's the starting point. Now, that said, here's my soliloquy. A a Uh, 30-second soliloquy, please. Uh, (laughs) I used to not think that I would let, I I would want everybody to know my every thought. I used to not think that I would want my credit card to be all over the internet, credit card number. I used to not think that I would want my vacation schedule and what my kids look like to be posted so everybody actually could see it if they want to. Fact is, I think the way we think about data and feel about data changes depending on what benefit you feel like you're getting back from it. And from our perspective is you own your data, but I think... What's going to happen is right now all of your healthcare data is controlled by the physician in the hospital, right? They're the source of your, your, uh, your biochemistry data. You go to the lab, the lab has it. You don't get to see it first before your doctor sees it. With, with, when you have technology like ours starting to be embedded into your life, you control that data because the source of the data is from you, is from your instruments, from your phone, is from your device. And the physician in the hospital has to ask permission to get at it. It doesn't start at the hospital. It doesn't start in the hospital. Which is why we'd like to go consumer for that reason. Otherwise, the hospital... That's right. And I think that changes changes the tidal wave of how people think about data. And if you have control over it, then you get to define what benefit you get out of that data and how much it costs and what it's worth to give it up. And then it becomes your choice. Okay. Ben, I'm sorry, this that, that was a minute. That, that's okay. Uh, this one has to be the, you know, less for sure. Um, this is also for you. How, uh, when would the system be accurate enough to be used as a continuous glucose monitor? Uh, give us 18 more months. Okay. Ooh, I like that one. That was 10 seconds. Yeah. Five seconds. Five, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Two points here. It doesn't say to who. Analogy of pacemakers with home monitoring. That was number one. Um, oh, they want, uh, and then our companies public. I'm, I'm, I'm a not private sure company. what exactly. We're, we're private venture back right, right. as well. Yeah. We don't have a product. Pacemaker with home monitoring. So I guess the question is, 
Who, who's who, well, who's just, quite, just yeah. A, an analogy, the real-time thing, I have a pacemaker, and I have this thing beside my bed. That's right. And so I have the real-time monitoring of that particular uh, part of my data, and that's an analogy to what you're going to do ex- on a much larger scale. That's exactly right. And by the way, that pacemaker, you know, it's not like a nurse. By the way, all this data, one of the things that healthcare systems might push back on is I'm already so busy as a physician, I don't need all this data coming my face and what to do with it. Uh, point, though, is, you know, our Nest camera at home, uh, um, it pings me only when something happens above a threshold that I set, right? And the rest of the time, the camera's doing its thing, but I'm not getting bothered by it. And it'll be an analog- analogous case. Yeah. Okay, we have four more questions. I don't know if we're going to get to all of them, but we'll try here. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to read this accurately. What's the largest molecule you can read, e.g., can you detect peptides or nucleotides? Um, and then the next word I cannot read, I-M-M, I don't know, or liquid biopsy. Ap- Immunoglobulins, yeah. Oh, mm, no? Uh, do you need to worry about signal... Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I should make, we should have a typewriter in here. Oh, amplification and signal to noise ratio. Did I read that right? <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the size of the molecule is of less importance. What's important is the, the compartment in the body that we read is in the interstitial fluid space. So, we can't count red blood cells, for example, because that's inside the, cap- inside the vessels, capillary. We're outside. We're, we're in the, the fluid that bathes the cells. So any molecule that's available in that space, in theory, can be detected by our methodology. Depending on what you're measuring, you, you may need signal, signal amplification. But what's actually probably more significant is if the molecule that you're measuring is in such low abundance... Uh, your sensor may not be reversible. But then it's okay. It may be just be a surveillance sensor, right? It may just be around. It's like, okay, once it detects something and it binds onto it, it'll never let go. Right. Um, then you have to put another one in. You know, pre, uh, there are certain markers from cardio, cardiac cells uh, as a precursor for heart attack, for example. HIV detection, surveillance, right? Um, those antibodies are in very low abundance. Um, you, c- you can have a surveillance sensor, in that sense, because when it's low abundance, you have to have the binding uh, constant to be so, so tight that it won't let go, and you just won't be in physiological uh, level. But as long as it's in the interstitial fluid, uh, we, in theory, we could make we could okay. it. I think we can get to all of these. Um, I'm hoping this next one isn't uh, too long. It, Mary Lou, it's for you. Are the camera uh, chips you use RGB? slash D chips, how does ultrasound interact with near-IR light to produce image? Uh, uh, when, we, when you put ultras, a focused ultrasonic ping in the body and illuminate at the same time, the light that passes through the focus changes color ever so slightly, just like the pitch of a police car siren physically changes as it goes by you. It's called Doppler shift. That's the technical term. And so we employ that by shifting another beam of light by that amount of color, and then beating that on a camera chip to record a hologram. But we make our own special chips. There's chips in cameras, but they're flawed in different ways, in, in sort of in cell phones and so forth. But we make our own, our own, um, our own camera systems that uh, do, don't use the red, green, and blue pieces of jello over the filters that enable us to have beautiful pictures of ourselves and our selfies and so forth. Instead, those are removed and have a very high conversion efficiency photon to electrons because cameras take light and move it to electrons, so an electric signal, but with very high efficiency in the near-infrared. So we use those in the fact that the pixels are the size of the wavelength of light so we can record the waves and the wavelength of light and how they beat together, which gives us much more information. And we don't get just the intensity of light. We're able to capture the phase of light, which is what's giving us this extraordinary resolution and image quality. Wonderful. Two more questions. Uh, How might uh, the RMRI detect um, hmm, seizures, seizures, (laughs) epilepsy? Uh, Yeah, we could uh, detect... Like, you could 
put it in your pillow, you could put it in a ski hat, and so you could detect seizures or pre-seizures in such a system in the future. Again, we're probably starting with heart disease and cancer, but maybe we should accelerate. So there's some organizations trying to get us to accelerate um, to the head. I think that that might be super important in ambulances as well. And so how can we bring on more um, functionality? Back to the regulatory question, when you get FDA, the details are first you prove it's safe, actually that's CE, then you prove it does something. You have a claim like it makes an image. It's a repeatable image. If you try to say that image is an epileptic seizure, you need to prove that. So that's called a clinical trial. If you just say that's an image and you take lots of images, you can say, boy, that lump's getting bigger in my breast, it's getting smaller, and the inference of of that is a faster road, we think, than perhaps the other. We're doing it all, but we're trying to phase it so that we can provide value sooner. And the last question, and then I need to close the program out. Um, You can each answer this. Uh, It's a great last question. How does one gain access to these technologies? Implants at the door? Yeah, if you're. Uh, <laughs> my, my email address is ben at profusa.com. Uh, no, if you're in uh, Europe, the technology actually, as I mentioned, is CE approved. We have uh, clinical studies that are ongoing. Um, you know, I can't recruit you, but you could volunteer. So. <laughs> okay. We'll have alpha kits at this, the end of this year, and we'll probably support a few organizations, beta kits next year, which will be more widely available product thereafter. So I think we would all like to give a big round of applause to Ben Wang, Dr. Mary Lou Jepson. <laughs> so we thank you for your uh, comments here today. We also thank our audience here as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 114th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. <laughs>